So we're beginning a brand new message series today called Return of the Living Dead. And I kind of like um, zombie stuff. I really like, uh, I've been watching um, <clears throat> Last of Us, this new one. It's based on a video game which I played. And uh, yeah, I'm 53 and I still play video games. And, uh, and um, uh, th this imagery is always with me though because it, it fascinates us that the idea that there's something that could have been dead that actually has the power and ability to come back to life. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we would want something that's been lost. I used to read a lot of um, uh, dark books when I was younger, and I read Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. And um, they moved to this town, and he, he, uh, their cat ends up going on the highway and getting killed, and they bury the cat in this, this uh, Indian burial ground, and it brings back things to life, but they come back not as good as they were before, and there's something kind of evil attached to them. Um, but our, our love for things, uh, and, and ends up, their child ends up getting hit in the street as well, and they bury him and bring him back. And it's this desire that's so deep within us that to let go of things that we love, things that matter to us, things that we care about, things that are meaningful, things that we don't want to say goodbye to, that we'll do anything to bring them back to life. And then there are things in our lives that are rancid and bad, and, and we wish they would just stay in the ground. We wish they would die. We wish the, the habitual sin, that the temptation that keeps pulling us in, that the, that the bad habits, the thinking, the way we talk, the, the struggle we have with addiction, whatever it happens to be, we wish there were some things that would just die and stay dead. And so this series is going to be about taking control of the things that live and die in our lives. Bringing back to us things that we lost, that we thought we've lost forever, and putting in the ground things that we wish would stay dead. Uh, today, I'm going to just talk about the rules for living, maybe more specifically, how to win at the game of life. How many have ever played, and I think probably most of you, if you've had kids, have played Milton, Brad, uh, yeah, Milton Bradley's um, um, The Game of Life? Everybody just kind of calls it life. Okay, almost everybody. So if you know the game, then you know it really simulates real life. There's challenges and opportunities and setbacks and, and abilities to make choices. It, it emulates what real life looks like. For example, you decide whether you're going to college or you're going to take the career path. You can choose at some point whether you're going to do that. And if you choose the college, there's some down-the-road benefits from that. But you start off in the game of life with $40,000 in debt. And I'm like, this is life. This is how it, it goes. Uh, now, one thing they do in the game of life, everybody starts with $10,000. I can tell you that doesn't happen in real life. But along the way, you get married and you have kids and uh, there's even opportunities for you to buy a house and then not only buy the house, but you also have to buy car insurance and homeowner's insurance because there's theft and damage and you can get in accidents and there's tornadoes and break-ins and things that can happen. So you have to be able to mitigate the losses by buying that policy. You can also buy stock, which if somebody lands on a certain thing, then you get paid from the bank $10,000, but you have to shell out $50,000 for the stock ahead of time. So it's all about taking risk in order to, and do you remember what the objective of the game is? It's everyone at the end retires, and when you retire, you count all your money, and whoever has the most money 
wins the game. Now, you might not know this. I did not know. I, I just looked up. When, when was the game of life invented? When did, was it first introduced? And I thought it said 1960, and that sounds about right. It was actually 1860. This game is over 160 years old. Now, it was introduced with a slightly different name and slightly different rules. Over the years, of course, it's been modernized and made just to keep up with the times, but the objective of the game remains the same as it did 163 years ago. The objective is to win with the most, to have the most. And here's what's a little disappointing and kind of scary about that is that the game emulates life. The reason that it was so entertaining and has been for all these years and has, has sustained and, and continued to be a game that people play over and over, we've actually got a, a, a edition of it in our game closet, is because it feels so much like real life. Now, I know that there are people who genuinely believe that the objective of our lives is to end with the most. I don't think that that's probably your objective. Maybe not because you don't want to, but because you know in reality you won't. You and I will never end with the most. There are people who are way ahead in this game, who, who, have the, who have the system working for them. It might even be rigged for them. There's a lot of people who are going to win that game if it's based on getting the most. So if you and I know that the objective of our lives is to not end our lives with the most, if we can't measure our success that way, then how do we? What are the rules for our life? If there's no thing that we can count, if there's not a thing of, that we can pile up and, and assess its weight or its value, if, if there's no way to do that, then how do you and I decide how we've won at life? I'm going to give you those in four rules for living. So grab your notes if you don't already have them out. Four rules for winning at life. For number one, rule one is this. You were made to do things, so find out what they are. You were made to do things, so find out what they are. So if I were to ask you right now to flip over your notes and just begin to write down everything that you've done in the last 30 days, everything you've done, I mean everything, from the time you got up until the time you went to bed, and I'm guessing there'd be a lot of things in there that repeated themselves, but there'd be some unique things that you did as well. You would not be able to fit that on all the pieces of paper that you have and maybe even in the row if you gathered all the. You would not be able to finish that list of all the things that you've done. I mean, go to work, make meals, clean the house, run the kids to school, pay bills, help the kids with homework, Go to your small group, shop for groceries, fill up the gas tank, the list goes on and on, do errands for work that weren't inside your normal schedule, uh, uh, help with a special project, go take care of your parents who are in need of help, and you could continue to just generate, oh yeah, and I forgot this, and you continued over and over, make that list of the things that you did. Those are not unimportant things. I don't want to diminish anything that we do because all of those things have value, but I want to ask you this question. Is that what you think you were created to do? I mean, in part, I understand that all of us who are married and have kids, that our calling is to raise our kids well, to love our spouse well, to do our 
I mean, the Bible says that you should work and not be dependent on others, that only, that, that, that a sinner is the one who just sponges off of others, but a follower of Christ should lead by example and take care of themselves. So all of the things I just mentioned are necessary things. They're good things, but is that what you were, do you believe that before the foundations of the earth were set and God imagined you in his mind and before you were even created, as he began to write your story, he just said, I'm going to fill their day with tasks, tasks that drain them, tasks that are mindless, tasks that are tiresome, tasks that are repetitive, or do you think God might have had something good for you to do? Ephesians 2.10 says this, God has made us what we are. In Christ Jesus, God made us to do good works, which God planned in advance for us to live our lives doing. You were created for really two purposes, and the first purpose is for God's pleasure because he loves relationship with those who love him. God loves being in relationship with you, but number two is God loves seeing you do good for other people because he loves them too. So God, before you were even created, before time began, God knew exactly what he created you for. The question is, do you know what that is? And I'm not talking what you are. I'm not talking... Uh, we know what God created you to be because we can see a lot of that on the outside. You're black or white, you're male or female, you're tall or short, you're heavy, you're skinny, you're, 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 um, um, you're young or you're old. Those are things that are outside of your control. Those are just simply what you are. They're not who you are. Who you are is determined by the choices that you make to be something according to how you choose to live your life and why you choose to do the things that you do. You know that you can do benevolent things and not have the right heart. I remember in college, I was, I was blessed in advantage. My parents paid for all of my schooling, paid for my books, paid for housing, paid for everything. I went to a, 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 a private Christian Bible college and uh, lived there from day one. I went all four years there. And I also worked two jobs. I worked for the school, and I burnished floors. Um, I was a good burnisher. Those short, they, they, you could see your reflection in the floors when I was done. And I was a pie maker for Domino's Pizza on the weekends. Yet I still had no money. Had no bills, mind you. Uh, just wasted money like a typical young adult might. And um, I remember being in church on a Sunday, and we were sitting up in the balcony of this church, and the usher was walking down, and I had a $20 bill in my wallet. That's all I had. And I went into my wallet to give something, an offering, and I looked down, and the usher's standing right in front of me, and he's got the basket out, and I just take my 20, and I just drop it in, because what am I going to do? Like, you got change? And I just dropped the 20 in, and that was it. That's all the money I had for the week. My friends were crying. They were laughing so hard because they knew exactly what happened based on my face alone. I didn't need to say a word. It was just this. And the usher didn't care. He was just getting the money. He was like, yeah, bring it on, son. Put it in there. And I dropped it in. My friends were laughing. Can I tell you, I was not giving with a cheerful heart, as the Bible says, that you were. It was resentful. I was angry. I was bitter that whole week. And... Uh, I never prayed so hard that God would meet my needs according to his riches and glory. 
Um, sometimes, though, when we think about the things that we're supposed to do in our lives to accomplish God's work, we think that we're supposed to have exceptional skills or supernatural abilities, or that even we're supposed to have impeccable moral character, that God can't use somebody in the middle of what we are and what we're doing in our lives. But can I encourage you with this? When God created you, he understood who you were before you did. He knew your challenges before you experienced them. He knew your shortcomings. He knew your sin. He knew everything about you and yet still created you to do good things. Something meaningful, something measurable, something valuable that could impact somebody else's life. And he did it knowing exactly who you were. Sometimes they're the most meaningful things because they're the most practical and relevant things. You are the compassion and kindness of Christ extended to somebody else. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11. Open your homes to each other and share your food without complaining. God has shown you his grace in many different ways. So be good servants and use whatever gift he has given you you in a way that will best serve others. If your gift is speaking, your words should be like the words from God. And if your gift is serving, you should serve with the strength that God gives. This wasn't an exhaustive list, obviously, but what he's saying right here is, whatever it is that God has enabled you to do, you should do that. You should be doing it. Discover what that is. And, and I'm gonna, I have even better news for you. The discovery won't take long because God is not going to have you work outside your gift set. There are some things I don't do well. Administration is one of them. I'm not good. Um, uh, there was a, uh, a thing we recently, kind of change we're making within the board, and, and it would maybe require change of roles, and I was thinking, well, gosh, maybe I could help with that, and then realize that this report that gets generated every month is on a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, and I went, I've literally in my entire life never done a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, and I'm going to be honest, I have zero interest in learning how to do a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, so I thought, Someone else is going to do this. Like, I'm not. I will. My gifting is, is leadership. So I'm going to lead someone who will do this report. Now, listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. It says there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but they're all from the same spirit. Capital S means Holy Spirit. There are different ways to serve, but we all serve the same Lord. And there are different ways that God works in people, but it's the same God who works in all of us to do everything. And that's important. I'm going to tell you why. Something from the Spirit can be seen in each person. The Spirit gives, to this, uh, gives this to each one to help others. So this is super important for us to grasp, and then we're going to move on is it does not matter what you've been gifted to do. It is equally valuable to God because he gifted you to do a specific thing that he did not gift somebody else to do. So he sees you playing a role that someone else will not play, which means your gifting, your role, your abilities are just as important as the persons whose gift you envy. We all want the other person's gifts. 
They look better. They look more fun. They look more gratifying. They look like, like I'm a drummer. Now, I haven't played in a long, long time, and it would be terrifying if I got up behind drums now because I'm really, really probably terrible at this point. Drums, so Caleb, my oldest, wanted to play drums, and I kept saying, You're not, I'm never going to let you play drums, learn how to play piano, learn how to play guitar. I'll even let you learn how to play percussion, right? Congas and timbales, and uh, you can play Latin percussion. You cannot be a drummer. world's got too many drummers. We need more musicians. Be a musician. And um, one of the things I hated most was you can't just sit down in a room with friends and go, hey, you guys want to sing some songs? Let's sing some Christmas songs together and then roll out the drum kit. You can't just sing Christmas carols or, 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 or any songs to just, <laughs> it's just an obnoxious instrument, right? It's a, sorry, Garrett, you're an awesome drummer, but you, you get what I'm saying. I, I've always wanted to be a musician, right? And then there are people who want to be here standing and speaking. There's people who want to have the gift of hospitality. And we all think that the other person's gift is really the gift that God given. And this thing that we do, it's not really a gift. It's just who we are. Isn't it amazing, though, since the time you've been born, you've been operating in this gift, and you might not even know what it is. Number two is this. The next rule of winning at life is when you're doing a thing, do it well. So figure out what it is that you're going to do, and then do it well. Listen, I've had a hammer in my hand, and I've built things with that tool, and I've also destroyed things with hammers. I've used that same tool to destroy something that was built that needed to be broken down, right? I've spent money on things that will last for generations. It may impact somebody's life, and their life impacts somebody's life, and their life impacts somebody's life. And I've also wasted money on things that have no lasting value at all. I've spoken words that have transformed somebody's perspective, and it's impacted them in a way, and encouraged them, and strengthened them in a way, possibly helped shape their marriage, possibly helped shape their parenting, helped shape their faith. I've said words that have transformed somebody's life in a meaningful way, and I've also said things that have zero value at all and shouldn't have been said. I've even said things that have been hurtful and destructive. Are you starting to see where I'm going that it doesn't matter what it is that you've got in your hands, you can use it to do good and do it for the right reasons and do it to evoke some kind of thing that God would want to have happen in that moment or you can waste it. You can misuse it. You can squander it. You can even hurt people with it can either be valuable or otherwise worthless. Colossians 3.23 gives us the why we should be doing things. And all the work that you're doing, work the best that you can. Why? Work as if you were doing it for the Lord, not for people. People are a terrible motivator for you to do good things because they are often undeserving. If you wait for people to be deserving of good, you'll never do good. If Jesus had waited for us to stop sinning before he came to save us, we would not ever be saved. He came to us at our worst. So do things because you're doing it for God. Ecclesiastes 9.10 gives us the how we're supposed to do something. Every time you find work to do, and there's always work to do, do it the best that you can. Do you see all these passages saying, do it really, really well. Whatever you're doing, do it well. Because in the grave, there's no work. There's no thinking. There's no knowledge. There's no wisdom. And we're all going to that place of death. In other words, you get one shot at this. You get one opportunity. 
That moment that you are deciding on whether to do something and how you're going to do it and why you're going to do it, you'll never have that moment again. And so do it really, really well. One of the greatest achievements in my life has been that when I give, I give with abandonment and I just say, God, this is my gift to you and whatever happens with it beyond me is not my business. God, I give it to you. I want this to be my act of worship and whoever receives that and stewards that money, then God, that's on them. They're going to be judged. They need to do their part well. I just need to do my part well. And in broken relationships, when I have difficulty in relationship with somebody, I just think, I'm going to do my part. I can't control what they do. I can't control how they respond. I'm going to have no regrets at the end of the day that I could have done it or should have done it better. I want to work hard, do the very best that I can. And that's all that God wants you to do is do your very best in everything you do. Number three is this, third rule of living. You weren't given a deadline, so assume that it's today. So the things that you're supposed to do, there isn't a timeline on it that at least God has given, so you have to assume that today is the day you're supposed to get that done and get it done well. What do you have to do today? I mean, what do you have to get done by the end of today? I'm asking a real question. Think about it for a second. What do you need to get done? Absolutely cannot wait and has to get done today. Now, now I want to add something to it. I want to put an urgency on it. Your story comes to the, its, its conclusion. The final period is on your story tonight at midnight. Your story ends. You're kaput. No more. In the grave. You're done. However you want to go. You can experience flying for the first time. You just, it's going to come to an end <laughs> when you hit the ground. You, 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 you're, going to, you're going to die peacefully in your sleep at the stroke of minute, but your story comes to an end. Does that change your list of what you need to get done today? And, and besides letting your wishes be known and making sure your will is signed and, and getting your affairs in order so that, 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 that the legal part of it's all taken care of, I mean, what is it that you're going to change about your life? I mean, are you going to see people differently? I mean, every person that you encounter from, from the moment of realizing that it's over at midnight to that moment, are, are you going to see people with different eyes? Are you going to value every minute as if it's the treasure that it really is that you just think, now I have eight hours, 37 minutes, 43 seconds? I mean, you wouldn't squander any minute knowing that it's over soon. I'm not being hyperbolic or dramatic to just be illustrative and, and try to get you to think. I'm being candid and honest about how infrequently you and I think about the reality that life is unpredictably short. I, I, hate, I hate loss and I hate death. Because it means that someone doesn't have someone in their life that they care deeply about. But it's inevitable. Nobody escapes this life. 
without dying. It's 100% guaranteed. Here's the thing that's not guaranteed is when that will happen. I know we all got dressed today believing this would not be the last outfit we wore. Probably would have been more strategic. I'm so hot right now, I can't even tell you. If I took my jacket off, there'd be embarrassing sweat stains underneath. I would have worn some, or turned the air on. I would have done one of those two things. The point is that none of us start our day believing it's our last. Yet for many, many, many people across the globe, millions of people across the globe, this will be their last. So it poses the question that if God has given you a work to do, and God said, which it does say in the Bible, that we'll all stand before him and be judged for everything we did in this life, good or bad. And if God gave you good to do, and you had 12 hours or 7 hours or 5 hours left, and you knew that you would stand before the God of eternity and be judged for what you did with your life, would you be more intentional about, number one, thinking what happens after death, and number two, being more intentional to do what God's called you to do? Galatians 6.10 says this, So seize an opportunity, any opportunity the Lord gives you to do good things and be a blessing to everyone, especially those within our faithful family. In other words, start right here. There's a bunch of people here who need someone to do good in their life. Any opportunity, you seize it. I have so many people who just go, Pastor, I'm just praying on whether I should. I'm like, praying for what? You don't have to pray about a lot of different things. Doing good is one of those things. Never pray about doing good. Just do it. And if it was the wrong thing to do, I promise you, God's going to give you a gold star anyway because you're like, sorry, Lord, I was just doing the good thing. I seized every opportunity to do a good thing. You get it? That you can just do good without pondering whether this is in your gift set or whether this, if you have an opportunity to do good, do good. And then finally is this, the final rule for winning at life is you're not living for a prize. Living is the prize. The famous actress, I might even say infamous, unforgettable for sure, Mae West once famously said, You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. And knowing her reputation for the risque behavior that marked her life throughout her life, I would say maybe her definition of doing it right would be a little different than ours, but it doesn't make the quote less true. The problem with most of us is that we define life, I mean really, really living the way we want to live, is a life that's absent of pain, of betrayal, of discomfort, of hurt, of misery, of loss, of death, of anything that steers us away from the dreams and hopes that we had that life would be something close to perfect. I did a wedding in Santa Barbara on Friday, and 
Uh, every time I do a wedding, I see hope and promise in that young couple. And I see the vows that they make to each other. And I'm hopeful that in those vows, that they are speaking a truth that will be unshakable. The reality is that almost everyone who's ever been married has said something very similar to that. And yet along the way, something happens. Difficulty, sickness, emotional incompatibility, uh, infidelity. There's a lot of different things that happen that make those vows negotiable. In other words, they started that relationship believing that they were going to have the marriage that never ended with pain and separation and ultimately divorce. And if that's just one aspect of our lives, then how much more do we apply that hopefulness and that state of dreaminess to everything else in our life? We don't get perfect lives. So somehow we think that this journey that we're in is not the prize. We think if we struggle enough that there's a big payoff at the end. You know, you work hard all week and then you have this weekend in which you kind of get to reward yourself because you're not going to get rewarded at work and the paycheck that you get is definitely not uh, commiserate with the amount of work that you did and so that's not the payoff. And if you buy a home, then if you work long enough, you'll be able to eventually pay that off and own your home. But gosh, the neighborhood we're in has over the last 25 years gotten really rough. We need to move out of this and you take on more debt. And you realize this dream that you dreamed is never really going to happen. And so we begin to think that this life, this is not the reward. But I want you to listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Because here's a different perspective. Whatever happens, always be thankful. This is how God wants you to live in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is God's plan for you that you're able to see that everything in life is worth giving thanks for because everything can be something that God turns for your good. Listen to what it says in Romans 8.28. We are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything together to work towards something good. I love this and beautiful when we love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan. When you say yes to God and yes to doing the good things that God wants you to do in your life and live up to the calling that God's called on your life as imperfect, as in challenged, as, as difficult as your life can be and as bad of a follower of Christ as you believe you are, God has something good for you to do today that marks how he created you. The goodness is not just that someone receives a good thing from you, but you are satisfied with your life because you did the good thing. And good, I don't mean just good by the definitions of how we define things. Good in that you were responsive and, and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit who whispers in your ear to do this thing. Even if it doesn't make sense, that's the good thing. That you became obedient to the voice of God. That you were sensitive to the voice of God. And you did something. And even if they reject the good thing, you go, I did that. I worked against my fear and my insecurity. I, I will tell you, 
I'm far more bold and I'm far more confident and I'm, I'm, I'm more sure of my words when I stand here than I am in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. One-on-one -on -one is when I become most insecure and I'm most, most uncertain of the things that I should say and, 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 and I don't deal with compliments well. I don't deal with, with difficulty well. If somebody says, oh, I just found out that this horrible thing happened to me. I'm like, good, good, good talking. I have, I'm literally just at a loss for words. So those who think I would never stand here probably you're going to be the one I would love having stand by me when somebody is going through something difficult because I know that that's where you shine. Lisa, she hates being on stage, but man, people love being around Lisa. She's always an encourager. She's so sweet. People don't say that about me after conversations. My point is this. Stop measuring goodness according to what you see around you and start measuring goodness by whether or not you're doing the things that God has just made you naturally to do well. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, and this is where we end. Tell, the, tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Speak some sense to these people. Tell them to go after God who piles on all the riches, listen, this is the good part, we could ever imagine to do good and be rich in helping others. Not, that, like, we think that God is all about eternity. God wants this life to be rewarding, this life to be fulfilling, this life to be exciting. To, all the riches we could ever imagine, to do good and be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. You want to really, really enjoy this life? Take risks like you never have before. Do things that you never imagined yourself doing. I, I, um, I think probably have said it many times since standing here is that I won't dance in front of people because I'm not confident in myself and I, I don't purposely want to make myself look stupid. And at this wedding, I'm like, let's go, honey. Let's get out on the dance floor. And she's like, no, no. And I was like, come on. She's like, look, it's all like 19 and 20 year olds out there. And I was like, it's exactly. Everyone's going to be looking at them dancing well. They're not even going to pay attention to how badly we're dancing. And I even said it to her. I said, we don't get these opportunities that often. Let's just go have fun. Right? Yeah. You guys want me to dance right now? No, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, I'm not going to give away all my best moves right here. Uh, your best life is probably the one you're not living yet. Not because you don't want it, but because you're afraid to do the simple things that move you from predictability and reliability and dependability and, 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 and certainty and security and confidence, everything that we do that we really feel strongly in that we're safe in doing are not the things that you're created to do to bring the best life that you've dreamed about and that God wrote into your story. The Bible says, delight yourself in him and he'll give you the desires of your heart. 
Start taking the kind of risk and saying the things that, that encourage someone and speak out and, and, and lift somebody up. We've all seen what it looks like when Christians lean into the speaking out and, and trash people for the way they live and, and, and crap on the world for, for not getting... I don't understand why it is we think that the world is going to live like followers of Christ when the church doesn't even live like followers of Christ. If I were them, I'd keep choosing what they're choosing. That's a lot more fun. It's a lot more entertaining. It, it, it seems to flow a lot better with every, what everyone else is doing. And, 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 and who would want to come to the other team who seems to have no fun, who seems to be angry all the time, who seems to be bitter at the world, who seems to, 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 to uh, have nothing encouraging or loving to say, I would love it if we had a church marked by people who just loved taking risk and doing good. Amen? Close your eyes and bow your heads for just a second. Nothing magical about that other than it gives you a moment to just be alone. you think, yeah, I, I don't know that I really believe that I'm going to end this world with the most of anything. I never, never set out for that to be my objective, but in all reality, I don't otherwise know how to measure my success, to know whether I'm doing well or not. And I want to. I want to do good things. I want to discover what God created me. I might, I might have even, I might know it already. And just not be celebrating or living in it or acting in it or seizing every moment. And, and I want to. <clears throat> and so if I do anything, I, I just want to seize every moment. And, and if I do it awkwardly or weird, if I, if, I, if I allegorically or symbolically go out and dance in this conversation or in this act of kindness to somebody or just speaking of word of encouragement. Maybe I discover that's what God really wants me doing. I might get up every day excited at the opportunity. Who, God, will you put in front of me that I can do something good for them? That I can help them? That I can serve them? Because whatever gift you have, spiritual, practical, whatever name you want to put on it, a grace gift... Whatever name you want to assign to it, it's all from God and it's all for good. It's all to serve others. It's the heartbeat of God is to serve. And if that's you, you say, I want to make that determination for my life begin. Because if, if in the next 48 hours my life comes to an end, I want to end I want to end doing something amazing for him. If I get 15 more years, 100 more years, I want to do something amazing for him. If that's you, just shoot your hand up and say, yeah, that's me. God, thank you for every person who's saying yes to the opportunity to do life differently and to win at what you've created. Their story doesn't look like my story, and I'm thankful for that because they're doing things and saying things, and they're meeting moments that I'll never have the opportunity to do. And I thank you for my own story, and I thank you for my own opportunities, and I don't want to miss a single one of them. So whether it's pride or insecurity or, 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 or my own agenda, whatever it is that blinds me and distracts me from doing good, in your name, I pray that my focus become more clear, that those opportunities show up on my radar, and I make that same determination in prayer for every person in this room. We declare it. We thank you for it. 
and we accept it as if it's already happened. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.